Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and it's great to have you along again for another episode, episode 381. Coming up, we're going to reveal the name of Australia's moon rover. Yes, we're building one and we're sending it to the moon, or NASA is, in 2026, I believe, it's the plan. But what do you call it? Well, uh, I am going to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Australia has no imagination whatsoever. Uh, We'll also be looking at uh, something that affected our ozone layer uh, not so long ago, and this uh, very strange galaxy that's been observed by the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, it was observed, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and then it wasn't. Uh, And uh, we'll answer some audience questions about civilization types, uh, tidal locking, and much, much more, all coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us to chat about all of that is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. It's uh, drawing to a close. It's 2023, isn't it? Sure is. As we speak. So yeah. Uh, yeah. we better fit in as much as we can. We we should do that. And uh, yes, and more. I, I'm just, I wanted to show you my to- my new toy. Um, I, I bought myself a, an early Christmas present. Uh, I don't know if you can see this. Can you see that? <laughs> oh, look at that. That's that- the... Uh, that- very elegant. That's the Boulevard yeah. uh, Lunar Watch. Tron Lunar Watch. Oh, yeah. and that's that's a replica of the one that went to the moon with Apollo seventeen. I don't know if you can see the instruction ah, yes, on the yes, back, yes, but yes. It, it names yeah. the date and and the astronauts yeah. and, and the way it came about because they um, they actually had um, commissioned a different watch company to give the astronauts watches, and the fellow who. Um, uh, and and that was uh, I can't remember the brand off the top of my head now, but um, was it Amiga? Was it uh, Amiga? Yeah, uh, with uh, Speedmaster. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, one of the astronauts broke his, so he took his own watch, which was a Boulevard. Boulevard. Yeah. And uh, they were all, they were actually an improved watch for the moon, but they didn't get the uh, first option, and uh, they ended up uh, getting up there by accident, and so voila, they became famous. So. Um, Got myself one. Yeah. I, I knew you were going to show me a watch when you said you'd got yourself an early Christmas present. Yeah. I um, take it you didn't buy it on a ship, though. No, not this time. I, it was yeah. on. Um, I bought it through one of my son's, um, my son's girlfriend's mother who works for a watch company. Uh, but, but they had a, they had a, um, <laughs> I don't know, they had a Black Friday special. So I, I got it. I got it nearly half price. So I was very oh, happy. That's very good. Yeah. yeah. That's very good. Um, yeah, but I'm loving it. Loving it. Well done. So you only had to take out half a mortgage to pay yeah. for it rather than the full thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I really need to get over my watch fascination. But well, no, I think you're doing all right. I've got about six of them now. Gosh, I don't know. What should you do? Uh, what we should do is get on with it because we've, um, what we, we've got to talk about this, uh, this rover plan. Yeah, uh, yeah. Australia is uh, has been commissioned to uh, send a or to construct a rover which will be sent to the moon in 2026 on a, on a NASA mission, one of the um, Artemis missions. Now, uh, apparently there were 8,000 submissions sent in to uh, name this rover. 
and 20,000 uh, people voted on the top four selections. Now, the top four were Kulamon, uh, Kakira, Mateship, which I kind of like, and uh, Ruva, R-O-O-V-E-R, as in kangaroo, Ruva. And the winner is Ruva. I mean, come on. 35% of the vote went for Ruva. So little imagination. So I I am so disappointed, Fred. I really am. I, I really am. Um, I, I, I can't really comment because the space agency <laughs> is very, very close to to uh, the astronomy branch where I work. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, the, the director of the space agency actually asked me if I'd take part in the selection process oh, okay. of the name. This I is didn't know that. A couple of months ago. So, so he asked me, and I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. He said, yeah, astronomy at large, that'd be great for you to do that. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Uh, and the next thing I heard, they'd, cho- they'd chosen the name. <laughs> so somehow it just disappeared into the ether and it never happened. I um, think so I can't... I think- I- I think you dodged a bullet. I might have done, yeah. Yeah, I might have done. I mean, I, I'm surprised, really, because Kulamon uh, was... Is Kulamon one of the indigenous names for the moon? I think that's the case. Yes, that's right. Uh, and um, mateship's obvious because that's an Australian thing, but yeah. uh, and Kakira is an indigenous word as well. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, and I would have... Yeah, I would. Have, I'm, I was surprised if didn't get one of those. Yeah, I am too. And there were a few others that I liked. Uh, Matilda. I guess they were just sort of hanging on the on the soccer team's <laughs> success this year. Uh, Bluey. Now I thought that was a good name. Bluey, the cartoon character uh, about the 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 blue healer dog. Uh, but Bluey is a dog's name. Uh, Rover is like a dog's name. I thought maybe that could work. Um, yeah. Then they went with Skippy, like Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, Wombat, Walkabout. Now, I thought that was good, except the thing doesn't walk. Yeah, but and yeah. my favourite, Rover McRover Face. I, I was going to say, at least it didn't get Rover McRover Face. And there was another clever one, but people overseas won't get it, get it Rover McManus. Oh, yes. After, yes. after uh, the TV host, Rove McManus. Although he did work in for America for a while, so some people might know who I'm talking yeah. about. Um, and Bert Newton, because his uh, nickname as a TV host in Australia was Moonface. Moonface. That's so right. that, and then yeah. there's the obvious ones, Steve Irwin, Sam Kerr. Yeah. Uh, Red Dog, named after a famous movie character that was a dog. Uh, Mad Max and Blinky Bill, which is another cartoon character, a, um, a, a uh, koala. But, yeah, it's going to be called Ruva. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> honestly, that would have been the last thing I voted for. Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't know. All, all about um, personal taste, isn't it? It's one of these things. Come on, Australia. It's better than... It, it's better than uh, you know, C ninety one F forty two or something like that. Which, if it had been an astronomer, that would have been what it was called. Yeah, I actually like that better than Ruther as well. <laughs> Sorry, I just think it's I think it's a shocker. But anyway, we're stuck with it. Mm. The public has voted, and this is a democracy. Probably shouldn't be after that. But anyway, <laughs> maybe maybe there'll be a coup d'état before we launch this thing, and they can change the name. Uh, let's. <laughs> Let's move along. 
<laughs> I think no. I'm overreacting, Fred. Well, you, um, you, you are you are turning out to be a bit prickly about this. I have to say, <laughs> I have yeah, to say. Yeah. And as I say, I can't really comment because I'm too close to the action. Not that I had anything to do with it, although it was a near thing that I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said, I think you're lucky you avoided yeah. it. Yeah, but let's talk about this uh, other thing: this um, supernova explosion, the gamma ray burst that uh, that hit Earth. Um, a couple of months ago now, uh, but uh, what it did was extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is where it came from. Yeah, so um, gamma ray bursts, as the name uh, suggests, are bursts of gamma rays. Uh, they, they actually were discovered first in an interesting way, Andrew, because um, there were spacecrafts, because gamma rays don't penetrate down through the atmosphere. Mm. Uh they interact with the atmosphere, but they don't penetrate the atmosphere. And so um, back in the, I think it was in the 70s, a, a flotilla of spacecraft were launched to detect gamma rays coming from illegal nuclear tests, at nuclear atmospheric tests. It was all part of the test ban treaty, the atmospheric test ban treaty. Satellites were put up to monitor the Earth to make sure nobody lets off a nuclear weapon clandestinely because you'd pick it up. Yeah. And what they picked up instead was, um, yes, was the, uh, uh, the, 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 the celestial version of a nuclear explosion. They, they picked up um, gamma rays coming from, uh, from space and uh, bursts of gamma rays, which, which last minutes rather than seconds. Unlike um, fast radio bursts, which are milliseconds, gamma rays are a little bit longer, but they're, but they're typically a few seconds long. Mm. Uh, this particular one is called GRB two two one zero zero nine A. That's a great uh, name for a rover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure you could. Yeah, <laughs> ground roving body. Yes, there you are. Gamma ray burst. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's and and it is it's unusual in two ways. First of all, it was very bright. Mm -hmm. uh, in the gamma ray spectrum, and also lasted a long time. I think it lasted seven minutes. Yeah, seven wow. minutes long, um, but was detectable. Uh, it's it sort of you know afterglow, if you can call it that, um, was still detectable for something like ten hours, and and that contrasts with most gamma ray bursts because uh, they 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 are detected in gamma rays and then they fade away very rapidly, and so. Uh, Basically, a number of spacecraft have been um, built that can respond to a gamma ray. And this one was discovered actually by two gamma ray space observatories, one called the Neil Garrell's Swift Observatory and the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. Uh, both picked up this thing. And, and if you, if you so if you can do that, uh, pick up a gamma ray, burst uh, uh, before it sort of starts sort of fading away, and that's usually a very short time, what you can then do is alert the ground-based visible light telescopes to go and look at the place where where this thing was observed. And that is what uh, what um, is usually the case, but means these telescopes have got to get onto it very, very quickly. Uh, whereas this one lasted for 10 hours. And mm -hmm. in fact, um, there's actually a very nice... Um, a time-lapse uh, set of footage that was uh, produced actually by the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope that shows the thing blasting off. And then you could see that it's still there uh, for the 10 hours later. So it was, it was um, 
Uh, you know, it was even observable in visible light by amateur astronomers. Work that one out. So yeah. this is a really, really bright object. You know, you don't need the world's biggest telescope, ground-based telescopes to see it. Amateurs so if you had a telescope pointed at the right place at the right time, you would have... Yep. Yeah, wow. you'd have seen it. That's right. Um, so uh, now it's uh, the, the fact that it could be observed uh, in visible light means you can pick up its distance. Uh, you measure its redshift, mm. uh, and it's two billion light years away. Uh, so this is not on our doorstep. Uh, no. it's significantly in the depths of the universe, but um, it actually uh, had made changes to the Earth's atmosphere, um, which were detectable uh, for um, quite some time. It's a, it's actually the sort of ionization properties of the atmosphere. By that, I mean uh, atoms that have been stripped of one or more electrons. These are ionized mm. particles. Um, and it includes the ozone molecules that we know so much about. They're the ones that ups, uh, absorb the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Uh, that's, you know, we've talked a lot about the hole in the ozone layer that came from the, the use of chlorofluorocarbons in refrigeration, yes. all of that stuff. Well, this gamma ray burst affected the ozone layer. Uh, it actually changed the levels. Um, that freaks me out, Fred. It does a bit, doesn't it? If you've got yeah. something two billion light years away that can deplete ozone in the atmosphere, then it just it just underlines how vulnerable our uh, our you know uh, uh, our planet and its its surroundings are. Uh, apparently, that that effect, the depletion of the ozone. Uh, lasted literally only minutes. It mm. was not something that, um, you know, lasted for hours and suddenly irradiated the surface of the Earth with ultraviolet. Uh, it was um, a few minutes and the ozone layer fixed itself. The, you know, the atoms, the electrons re reunited. Uh, so it wasn't a serious event, but it does, it does suggests that if you've got a supernova explosion, and that's kind of basically what gives rise to gamma ray bursts, um, uh, that's nearby, uh, it's telling you that that it can make a significant difference to uh, our planet and its environment. I, so, I would not have expected something that far away to have any impact on us whatsoever. Yeah, that's right. So would I. <laughs> um, it is being touted as... Uh, a once in ten thousand year event, uh, and uh, is being called a boat, B O A T, the brightest of all time. Is that uh, the same one we were talking about? I think it might be, yes, because right. it was back. It was last year. It was the 9th of October, twenty twenty two. I think we yeah. mentioned it before. Yeah. But what we haven't mentioned before is the fact that it was bright enough to affect the the atmosphere of our planet. Uh, mm. That's the, that's the big news story that concerns this, and it is really quite remarkable. Do we know its exact origin? Um, well, these things, as I said, they're, they're, they're still a bit mysterious. I think they're better understood than when they were first observed back in the 70s. Mm. Um, that um, what, what you've got uh, is effectively uh, probably a, a supernova. Um, uh, it, it, it's, there's, there's still many different interpretations of gamma ray bursts. Uh, it, one one is okay. You've got a supernova that is a star whose mass is bigger than uh, what would allow it just to collapse to a neutron star after the explosion. Uh, and this, you know, this um, 
uh, if you've got something that's more massive than that, then it'll collapse to a black hole. It's the common formation mechanism for stellar mass black holes. Uh, and we know that they release lots of energy, not just electromagnetic energy, but gravitational energy as well, which is one of the reasons why we're, we're getting so excited about the the, the, um, the, the, the LIGO uh, Gravitational Wave Observatory because it can detect uh, these events, as uh, as can other uh, other detectors throughout the world. Virgo is the other one, mm. uh, and in Italy and Kagura in Japan, if I remember rightly. I think I'm remembering the names correctly. I might not be there, um, but you know what I mean. It's um, it's uh, it's the really high energy end of astrophysics. It's really extraordinary the the, the processes that go on, uh, and there are still some questions about gamma ray bursts we we I, I think it's true to say that we haven't tied them down yet as to what exactly the um the the, the basic mechanism is um we think that there's that, that, that it's partly due to jets of material being emitted from this collapsing star uh and you know that Jets have to point in the right direction for you to see them. Yeah, uh, jets of material. So there's all that thrown into the mix as well, uh, and and you know to just to add to the complexity, we've got um, fast radio bursts, which seem to be something quite different. They are probably uh, flares on magnetars, which are highly magnetized uh, neutron stars. But all these things that you know, gosh, when I started my career, we had no idea about. We didn't even know that there was gamma rays came from space at that time. Stuff. Yeah, it's quite incredible. I suppose that uh, sort of spawns several questions. What if there's a supernova closer to us? Uh, does that mean we're potentially more exposed? Uh, and Betelgeuse once again comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Betelgeuse is, what, 500 light years away, something like mm -hmm. that. Um, Which is a lot uh, closer than 2 billion. It, it is, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so a gamma ray burst from Betelgeuse, yes, would be. Uh, especially if it was a boat, a brightest of all time, it would be a bit catastrophic for the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just hope it's looking the other way when it happens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you're talking about material that's being directed out, you know, in relativistic jets, then you do want it to be pointing the other way. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, you can read all about it online. It's everywhere, that story. It's um, made the New York Times. It's, uh, it's on several websites. Um, it's... It's definitely worth a read, uh, but uh, I, I imagine, Fred, that someone somewhere will do a bit of a study and uh, write a paper about this at some stage. That it, it seems uh, like it's uh, it's that sort of topic. Yeah, they, no, that there are there are papers. In fact, I should be able to give you the title of one of them. But oh, there you are. Laying my hands on it at the moment. Uh, it was I can't even remember where it was published. I think it's the Astrophysical Journal, uh, uh, and. Um, I can't lay my hands on the reference to it. Uh, it's um, uh, it's uh, a, a European discovery. Just to mm. give you a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, a closed element, so it's probably in astro astronomy and astrophysics, which is the European journal. Okay, very good. Uh, yes, and if there's anything more to learn about it going forward, we'll we'll let you know. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's just take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, a virtual private network is a great way to protect yourself from all sorts of nefarious situations, uh, from hackers to uh, spammers to... 
Uh, well, just about anybody who wants to get hold of your private information, your bank details, your passwords, your name, sell it to the dark web. Uh, your, your usernames and passwords are highly valuable commodities. And there's a great way to stop anybody getting hold of them, and that is to use a virtual private network. And there is no better than NordVPN. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, you get a, a special deal uh, as um, a NordVPN customer. First of all, uh, there's an exclusive deal available right now uh, for Christmas uh, where you can save uh, quite a few dollars and get uh, extra time on your um, on your service. So four extra months if you buy NordVPN through our special URL, which I'll give you in a moment. And don't forget, Nord always offers a 30-day money-back guarantee. So the URL is nordvpn.com slash space nuts. When you go to that, you'll you'll see the uh, opening interface. Uh, you click on Get NordVPN, and then you can go through all the deals that are available. And there are all sorts of services that you can add on. But um, it gets cheaper over the longer um, term of your of your use. So uh, when I um, signed on for NordVPN, uh, I went with the two year deal, and I got everything. And that worked out to be uh, quite inexpensive. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with the service. I'm very happy with the uh, password manager. That is one of the best things ever. Uh, I get secure high-speed uh, VPN, malware protection, and tracker and ad blocker. That comes with the basic service. If you go to the next level up, you've got the, the password manager and the data breach scanner. If you get everything, they'll throw in a uh, one terabyte cloud storage and the next generation file encryption. And it is great stuff. I mean, I, I've been using it for quite some time now. And as I've mentioned before, I've used it in places where I've been able to get online and my wife hasn't because she's not used the service at that particular time. So um, it is uh, quite remarkable. And I still don't know how sometimes when you're on NordVPN, you get higher speeds than you actually would not being connected to it. So their servers are very, very good. They're all over the world. It is a fantastic thing to do for peace of mind, uh, especially if you're a traveller or if you use public Wi-Fi anywhere you go. Those are where people prowl. Uh, yeah, think about it as insurance. Uh, a virtual private network is just putting up a wall between you and somebody who wants to use your information or something unsavory that's going to see maybe your bank account emptied. You just don't know these days. There's so many scams around. So check it out, nordvpn.com slash space nuts and get the deal. I honestly think it's uh, one of the best things I've ever done. nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Now back to the show. Space nuts. Now, um, Fred, uh, to our next story, and this uh, this is sort of a, um, a, a, a telescopic um, revelation, uh, initially involving the Hubble, but now with the James Webb Space Telescope up there doing all sorts of amazing things, they've been able to um, nail this one down a bit better. Uh, the popular press is calling this a ghost object because it sort of comes and goes, which is just a you know popular way of getting people to read your article by putting the word ghost in a headline. But um, yeah, what exactly are we talking about here? So we're talking about um, uh, an object. So, you know, it's being called a 
reappearing, disappearing galaxy, mm. uh, which is what piqued my attention on the news media. So they got you too. They did because they don't. Galaxies don't do that. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. There's something. Yeah. What's all this then? What's all this then? Um, but what it means is uh, we're talking about an object that is visible at some wavelengths and not at others. That's the bottom line. Okay. And so this uh, much much less exciting when you say it like that. It's almost yes, as true. exciting as Ruva. You know I'm going to keep dumping on that. You thing. are going to, yeah. Poor old Ruva. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you know, Andrew. You've well, got with to, a name like that, something's going to go horribly wrong. You've got to, yeah. What will go wrong is you'll decide in the end that you like it. No, <laughs> you'll face up to it. You'll think, oh yeah, it's not that bad. No, nah, not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll give you another name because this galaxy is not called Ruva. It's called uh, Aztec 71. Oh, I like that. It's quite common. Yeah. So it's uh, AZTEC 71. I should have checked what that is an acronym for. It's one of the surveys, one of the many surveys that uh, astronomers um, uh, are beloved of. They do surveys and then they, they call their, the objects uh, a number. Uh, followed by, pre- preceded by the survey name. Anyway, Aztec 71. So it was first found um, some years ago by a telescope I used to have a bit to do with, although I never observed with it, uh, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii mm-hmm. uh, on the summit of Mauna Kea. That is a microwave telescope uh, which was operated for um, uh, many years by the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, which is where I used to work. And so um, my colleagues were... Uh, very much uh, microwave engineers. They uh, built uh, the world's first microwave imager, the world's first you know image sensor for microwaves, which is called uh, Scuba, uh, and uh, that was a big deal in Edinburgh and uh, used on the JCMT, the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. Anyway, uh, the the object was detected first uh, in those wavelengths, which are sort of sit between what we might call the far infrared, the the redder than red light that's very redder than red uh, and the microwave region uh, oh, sorry millimeter wave region that that microwave region and so that was uh, that was when Aztec 71 was first found but it was followed up by our old friend Alma the Alma telescope in Chile uh, oh, yeah. which is a kind of super deluxe version of the James Clark Maxwell telescope uh, with an array of I think it's 60 odd dishes at a ridiculous height uh, at a place called Chanyantor uh, uh, not far from San Pedro de Atacama uh, where uh, you're in the northern Atacama desert uh, mm. very very dry and that's why Alma's so good at what it does so it could be seen in the microwave spectrum that uh, that uh, Alma looks at. Um, now, the thing is that with an object like this, what you want to do is see invisible light, and that's enter the Hubble telescope into the story. Yes. Um, but it, it ain't there uh, oh, in the Hubble. Uh, okay. And that's why it's an appearing, disappearing uh, galaxy. Uh, it's not visible, invisible light. Uh, and that tells you that you're looking at an object that is a bit peculiar uh, because uh, it shows up in the microwaves uh, and I guess what you might call the far infrared, the sort of stuff that uh, uh, Alma and JCMT can see, but not invisible light. And the reason why it's coming to the headlines now is that our new toy, 
the James Webb Space Telescope, which is an infrared telescope, has detected it and indeed given us some very nice images of this object. Um, it's uh, only visible in the in the reddish uh, the, the, the reddest part of the infrared spectrum okay. uh, that the James Webb Telescope is looking at. So um, it's, but it is there, and it's uh, the fact that we can now see it with an infrared telescope as well as the microwave telescopes, but not in the optical. What it does is that gives you a clue to what's going on here. And it turns out that what you're seeing is a galaxy which is basically enveloped in thick dust, uh, interstellar dust. Now, we know about interstellar dust from our own galaxy. That's what causes the dark streaks in the Milky Way. It's what causes the, the coal sack, that blob of uh, uh, the, the black blob de devoid of light um, near the Southern Cross. It, it's in, uh, in First Nations uh, tradition. It is the head of the emu in the sky, uh, a typical dusty region of space where there's so much dust that you can't see the stars behind it. And what's happening with uh, Aztec 71 is uh, that the whole galaxy is in a kind of coal sack. There's dust around it that means that you don't see the stars within it. Uh, what you see is the dust itself radiating infrared because dust dust actually does that. It's, it gets heated up by the stars and radiates in the infrared. So um, that's the interpretation of what we're seeing here, uh, a, a paper published in um, uh, the Astrophysical Journal uh, with a very, very large number of authors. Uh, that um, that uh, the, the, the paper draws the inference from that, mm. that because this object is not visible in, in optical, at optical wavelengths, in visible light, it's not seen in visible light, um, it suggests that since most of our surveys of galaxies are done with visible light, maybe we're missing a huge number of galaxies that are actually like this dusty galaxy. Yeah. And they're so dusty that they don't show up in the optical surveys. Uh, and so um, it's kind of a potentially opening up um, a, a, a new area of astronomy for scientists who have not uh, really considered this possibility that there's a there's a whole population of dusty galaxies that we're missing uh which is an important piece of work uh, really so yeah um university of texas uh austin uh, and uh, other institutions a very large number of authors of this paper which is entitled a near infrared faint far infrared luminous dusty galaxy at z of order of five in cosmos web work that one out so if there was no dust in the way, we would see it in visible light? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it wasn't in, it sort of encased in a cocoon of dust, then we'd see it. Okay. Does that mean we are somewhat hidden from certain angles too? Because there's a lot of dust at the centre yeah. of our, galax uh, our um, galaxy, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And so, yes, if you were looking at our galaxy from the outside... Uh, you would always see it because there's not that anything like as much dust as, as um, Aztec 71's got. Mm. Uh, but if you looked at it sort of edge on, so you're looking at the thick at the disk of the galaxy from the side, you would definitely see dark markings throughout that disk, very strongly dark markings, which will be the dusk in the dis sorry the dust in the disk of the Milky Way, not the dusk in the disk of the Milky Way, as I nearly <laughs> said, but the dust in the disk of the Milky Way. 
so we're a, a galaxy that's still uh, still sort of forming stars. A lot of the material of our galaxy is actually hydrogen uh, rather than being dust, which is the case in this other one. So this could um, this discovery could open the way for uh, further investigations into other potential galaxies. Uh, now that we've now that we've learned this kind of situation exists. Yeah. So what you do is you get a telescope, well, like the you know the ALMA or the JCMT or the James Webb Telescope, and you do a survey. You do as many you know as many uh, as much of the sky as you can because these things are visible in those telescopes. The problem is all of those instruments tend to be not what you call survey telescopes, for which you need a wide field of view. So with a survey telescope, you want to observe as much of the sky simultaneously as you can and then go on to the next bit rather than having this, you know, kind of drinking straw view of yeah. a little bit of sky. Because then if you try to do a survey with that, you've got a tiny distance between that field of view and the next one. And it takes you decades to cover the sky, if not hundreds of years, depending mm. on how big it is. Okay, that's uh, fascinating. But um, yeah, uh, if if you'd like to read about that. Uh, you can find it, uh, well, you can find it um, on the Aztec. Uh, if you do a search for Aztec, you'll find it, uh, Aztec 71, um, with double C, Aztec 71. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Ready for some questions, Fred? Why not? Why don't we do that for a change? Okay, we've got one audio question and a couple of text questions that have come in. Uh, we'll firstly be heading off to Germany. Hello there. This is Akshay from Germany, and I'm a huge fan of the Space Nuts podcast. My question is a two-part question. The Kardashev scale is used to define the types of civilizations into type 1, type 2, and so on. Humanity is considered to be 0 0.7, it's believed that we would be able to achieve this type 1 status in the next 100 years. So my first question is, what do you think about the scale and is it actually used in astrophysics and cosmology to search for other types of civilizations? And as we know, type 2 civilizations are the ones who can harness the total energy of a star. This is hypothesized by constructing a Dyson sphere around the star. So my next question is that, is it actually possible to construct a mega structure that can cover the sun would like to know your thoughts. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Ashkar. I hope I got your name right. Uh, but uh, this is this is fascinating. We have talked about Dyson spheres before, and we've talked about um, different types of civilizations and and where we sit in that spectrum. Uh, what did he say? We're at point seven. We're just a bit short of being a type one civilization. Um, do you want to expand on that, Fred? before we try and answer the question. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to cheat because I did uh, write a little bit about this kind of thing in um, my kids' books. But I saw you reaching for that. I had to grab it because I'd completely forgotten about it. And that <laughs> partly answers the question. Uh, astrophysicists don't really think about this uh, sort of thing. Uh, a few astrobiologists th uh, do, um, but uh, the consensus of astrophysics generally and astrobiology is that we could be unique, uh, certainly mm -hmm. in our galaxy. So there's not really much point in talking about these civilizations. But let me just read a little paragraph because um, my um, space warp had lots of uh, little um, 
breakout boxes, which we call tech talk. I'll, I'll just throw in something before you start. Do, please. Just in time for Christmas. Uh, right. Space Warp. Uh, yeah. Thank you for Space Warp. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's just in time for Christmas. It's a great book, full of cartoons, full of pictures of... Yeah, anyway, never mind. This is not an advert. Um, what I said was, because this is to remind me, because okay, I can't remember all this stuff. Um, it says, one measure of what an advanced civilization can do is the amount of energy it can use. The idea was proposed by astronomer Nikolai Kardashev in 1964, who devised a scale of civilization based on energy resources. For example, imagine a civilization that gathers all the energy from its parent star by building a sphere of solar panels around it. This so-called megastructure is known as a Dyson sphere, named after the physicist Freeman Dyson, who popularized the idea in 1960. If Dyson spheres exist, they should be detectable by their infrared radiation. So far, no one has found anything like this. Now, um, I'm not going to go into the different types because I can't remember all that stuff, uh, type 1s and type 2s and, and uh, things of that sort. But um, the question about, you know, are we, are we as a civilization anywhere near the idea of building megastructures? Um, I think the answer is well, no. Well, I'd agree because uh, we can't even name rotors. You <laughs> that was going to come. There's got to be a clever name for a megastructure that's got kangaroos in it. <laughs> oh, no, please, no. Yeah. Anyway, so Dyson spheres. Yeah, I've got an, I've got one. I've got one. Mob mentality. Oh, I love it. Mob, yeah, I love that. Yes, love that. For those who don't know, a group of gank kangaroos is called a mob. Indeed. That's the collective noun. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, all these are really interesting concepts, the Kardashev Civilization Scheme. Check it out, you know, to, to our listeners. Check it out. It's very easy to find that stuff online. Um, but uh, it's... It, it, there, there's nothing in astrophysics that leads us to believe that any of this is actually real. And, mm. uh, and and a lot of it comes from this idea, which I think is pretty prevalent among the, the people who really know about living organisms and uh, evolution and all the rest of it, um, that uh, the step from a single-celled organism, which might be relatively common through the universe, from that to even... An amoeba, you know, a multi-celled organism, is huge. Um, and one of the pieces of evidence for this, if I can kind of get on a bit of a hobby horse here, is that the first single-celled organisms appeared on Earth within the first billion years of the Earth's existence. So it's a very long time ago, and we yeah. see them, you know, they're relic stromatolites over there in Western Australia. These are mats of microbes, uh, and they came into existence probably about four. 3.8, 4 billion years ago. But the first multi-celled organisms were only about 700 million years ago. So there was this long, long period, 3 billion years, where there was nothing but slime on Earth. Yeah, but you know, you know why it took so long? Because Australians had to vote on <laughs> what yeah, Australian, direction to go. Australian microbes couldn't. Get couldn't decide. That. Yeah, that's right. Well, that could, you could be right there because <laughs> a lot of these microbes that we, you know, the evidence for them, we actually see in Australia 
WA weather are some very, I very rest ancient parts. It rest, you rest your case, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, so going back to it, um, uh, you know, yes, it's really interesting to hypothesize on what advanced civilizations might do. Uh, and perhaps if we manage to survive, uh, what we might do uh, as a species down the track. But I think we are millennia away from anything remotely uh, describable as a megastructure. Mm. Um, we've got a very, very long way to go. And, um, yeah, you know, you never know. Um, st- once we start pulling helium-3 back from the moon, uh, if that happens, we might not need any of these weird and wonderful things because you can build something the size of a toaster uh, and uh, use um, nuclear fusion of helium-3 uh, quite harmlessly to um, to produce electricity that's yeah. a slight exaggeration but that's the bottom line it's a it's a it's a, a possible a possibility for nuclear power very clean nuclear power that might come down the track mm, fascinating um and uh, akshar said we're at 0.7 on that civilization rating scale um, yeah I can't remember uh, what that means, actually. Yeah, I'd have but, to look up that. Well, it's, it's a mute point at the moment because after the Rover vote, we're back to point five. <laughs> yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Thanks, uh, Akshar. Lovely to hear from you. Let's go to a question from Tim. Uh, hi, Fred and Andrew. The podcast is Brill. Uh notwithstanding the names of rovers, he says here, uh, Tim from Burgess Hills, Sussex, UK. Um, my question is, why do planets and moons become tidally locked? Is it because one side of the planet or moon has small mass, e.g. mountains? Uh, will the Earth's ocean tides gradually slow down the Earth's rotation by friction and then it will become tidally locked to the moon uh, or the sun? Uh, I'm lining up some black hole questions for next time. Um, many thanks, and of course, keep up uh, the awesome work, Tim. I like this question. Yeah, it's a great question. As um, we talk I... about tidal locking all the time, the moon's tidally locked to Earth. Yeah. Uh, it is drifting away yeah. uh, bit by bit. Uh, so he's, he's sort of asked a, a what-if question, but it's real life. It's not a speculator. It, no, it's, 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 it's not. It's actually happening. As we mm. speak, it's happening. Um, so uh, so the... the Probably the way to think to, to deal with this is to actually answer the second part of his question first. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the Earth gradually slowing down in its rotation so it'll eventually be tidal locked to the moon, tidally locked to the moon? And the answer is yes. Um, and it's why one reason why we have to keep inserting leap seconds into um, into uh, the length of the day, uh, which we've done since the 1970s. I think, if I remember rightly, about 25 times either on the first of 31st of December or the 30th of June, um, there's actually, at the moment, the Earth's rotation is speeding up slightly because there's other forces at play. There's a lot of sloshiness going on in the, in the Earth's core and mantle. But the mechanism for that slowdown, uh, so just think of it in terms of the Earth to start with. What you've got is our planet that's spinning once every 24 hours. Uh, it's got the moon uh, relatively close by, which is going around it once every 27 and a half days. Um, um, and the the revolution of the moon uh, in its orbit is in the same direction as the spin of the Earth. In fact, most things in the solar system are. They're anti-clockwise as seen from the north, uh, above the North Pole. So think about this. The Here's the moon in space. 
here's the earth. I'm drawing a diagram on my desk. I can see it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> With my fingers. Um, the earth, here's the moon. The, the earth is spinning and the moon is, its gravity is pulling up a tidal bulge on the earth. Yeah. Uh, now that, uh, but the earth is kind of spinning underneath that. If you can imagine it, that this tidal bulge ah, is always yes, yes. kind of directed towards the moon. The Earth's still turning, and what it does is because of friction between the oceans and the uh, and the Earth itself. And you actually don't need oceans for this to happen; it can happen in solid rock as well. Mm. But what's happening is that the bulge of the tides pulled by the moon actually drifts slightly in the same direction that the Earth is rotating. And what that does is that adds a bit of gravitational acceleration to the moon, which speeds up the moon in its orbit to respond. The moon moves further away. So that's why the moon is drifting away. And it's that friction between the, the you know, the tidal bulge of the Earth and the Earth itself spinning underneath. That is the friction that causes tidal locking because it's gradually over time slowing down the Earth's rotation. Okay. Um, and so the same thing would have happened the other way around with the moon. Very early in the moon's history, uh, as the moon was spinning, uh, the Earth would have raised a bulge. Actually, not in the moon; it's uh, not in the oceans of the moon because it didn't have them, but in the rock itself, which acted as a as a break on the on the rotation of the moon. And so it became tidally locked, probably quite quickly uh, in the first certainly the first billion years, maybe even the first few hundred million years of the solar system. Mm. So that's how that process takes place. And yes, eventually, uh, in probably more than 10 billion years, by which time the Earth might not exist anyway, because the star will have, sun will have turned into a red giant star. Mm. But um, over time, if nothing else happened, the Earth would be tidally locked to the moon. If I remember rightly, the moon and the Earth would rotate, would revolve around one another uh, always facing the same uh, to, to each other in, I think it's 40, 42 days, 45 days, it's about that, rather than the 27 and a half days at the moment, that is the month. So the month and the day become the same length of time because the Earth's rotation has slowed down. Yeah. It's matched the, the moon rotating around it. Uh, by which time, by the way, the moon will be half a million kilometers away as well. And, so and. further away. But it will be a stable situation. So we'd never lose the moon altogether. It would wind up in this state. But as I was just saying, the supernova effect will probably overtake it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is it... Sorry, the red giant, red giant. Yeah, I knew what you meant. Um, not the supernova. Sorry. We don't really, we don't want a supernova. We don't want a supernova, no. Uh, we won't get one with the sun. It's not massive enough. So. The only good thing about a supernova like that would be it would get rid of the rover. <laughs> uh dear. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, is it a coincidence or is it a part of the effect of tidal locking that our rotation and the rotation of the moon creates that situation where we're always seeing the same part of the moon? Is that part of the same effect? It is. Just the fact that, that the moon always faces the same way towards us. It's, that's, so it's not that's, a coincidence. It's actually a part of the yes, effect. Yes, it's, yeah. it's exactly the effect. That's right. And so eventually, as I said, the, the, the Earth will be the same. The Earth will always present the same face to the moon, just like the moon presents the same face to Earth. Mm. So on one side of the Earth, you won't be able to see the moon at all. You'll never see it. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. not nothing to do with mountains, Tim. It's all to do with um, that other stuff he was talking about. See how much I listen. Um, 
you're, just, you're still too, you're fretting about that Rover still. You oh, know, it's, just, I can't get it out of my head, Fred. Yeah, I can't. Still. Really bothering me. Uh, thank you, Tim. Let's uh, move on to our final question for this week from Daniel. Hey, guys, I am mediating a question from my father per a discussion we had regarding time and space. We all talk about that at dinner. Um, he's from Nottingham, England, so try not to be biased. Uh, his question relates to relativity. How is it possible to measure the speed of anything if an object is relative to many points of reference, e.g. two trains moving, moving at different speeds to someone standing in the train, person on the ground, the speed is different. Or more expansively, said trains are travelling at, this, uh, at uh, a speed across Earth. Earth is orbiting the sun at 100,000 kilometres an hour. The solar system orbits the galaxy substantially faster and the galaxy vastly faster than that and so on. So how does one measure the speed of the train relative to anything? I guess the point is, to calculate speed of objects, does one always need a fixed point of reference? But what is that reference point when calculating velocity and distance of objects on uh, an Earth or intergalactic? scale. Uh, is the reference point always Earth? If so, why? Thank you kindly, Daniel and Peter. Uh, I hope uh, Dr. Watson gets uh, proofread, uh, gets to proofread this before the show. No, he didn't. <laughs> I just gave it to him then. No, that's all right. Um, but yes, it's a great question because, you know, we're taught in relativity, everything's relative to something else. So is mm. there an absolute, the question is really is, is there an absolute frame of reference? You know, is there a something that you could say, this is the stationary reference frame of the universe itself. Um, and uh, in a sense, the, the, there is and there isn't, if I put it that way. So exactly as, uh, as Daniel says, we, we tend to measure everything with respect to everything else. Uh, and it goes back to, you know, when I was uh, professionally measuring star velocities by the hundred, which we did with the UK Schmidt Telescope here up at Siding Spring Observatory, not far from you, Andrew. Um, we we always corrected for the Earth's motion around the sun. So what we were doing was measuring those star velocities with respect to the the, the solar system itself, and that's fine. But we know from other considerations what the velocity of the sun is going around the galactic centre, exactly as Daniel said. So if we're talking about looking at other galaxies, we we correct for our motion around the galactic centre. And you could, in theory, correct for the motion of our galaxy with respect to the Andromeda galaxy um, to get another frame of reference. Um, so the, the, there isn't really an absolute frame of reference in the universe. The, the, there is one thing that did make people wonder if there was, and that is that when you look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is, as you know, the flash of the Big Bang, when you look at that, uh, you find that we've got a velocity with respect to it. I can't remember what it is, actually. It's some hundreds of kilometers per second. Hmm. And, th and that makes you wonder if what we're really seeing there is the motion of our our whole galactic network uh, with respect to uh, the universe itself, and that might be a slightly, uh, you know, just a slightly um, uh, speculative interpretation, but it has been put forward as being an absolute frame of rest for the universe, the frame of rest of the flash of the Big Bang, uh, because it's as fundamental as we can get. Uh, but the bottom line is that. Um, 
you know, the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, that's been measured many, many times. And in fact, it was kind of predicted as the speed of light before um, relativity came into being by James Clerk Maxwell. His, his name's cropping up twice in the mm. in the uh, in this episode. He was James Clerk Maxwell, a physicist, a Scottish physicist. Um, he had a theory of electromagnetism which popped out this number C. That's why it's called C because it comes from uh, um, Clerk Maxwell's theory. Uh, and it turns out that that was the speed of light. And it turns out that the prediction is 300,000 kilometers per second. And that matched actually all our measurements of the speed of light, which, by the way, go back to the 1680s uh, with a Danish astronomer by the name of Wormer, who measured the speed of light by looking at the way Jupiter's moons behave. And he figured out that the, some of the things that were a bit peculiar about Jupiter's moons came came about because... Uh, if the moons were on the far side of Jupiter, the light was traveling for a longer distance than if they were on the near side of Jupiter, and he could work out what that distant difference was. So he got a good estimate of the speed of light. Well, well, well. Well, 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 yes. <laughs> and that's enough about that. But yeah, interesting, you know, relative. It's a good question and uh, well, well, well framed. Indeed. Uh, I, I, I love that they're having those kinds of conversations. So, uh, yeah. And I'm glad they came to us to see if we could, um, or you could uh, come up with. <laughs> I am too. Yeah. And um, look, I, I don't know, Daniel, whether your dad wins the argument or uh, or your <laughs> your yourself wins the argument, but um, give my regards to Nottingham. It is where my niece lives. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Peter. Lovely to uh, get your question. And don't forget, if you have questions for us, you can send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Space Nuts shop because you might be able to pick up a Christmas edition of Space War by someone who shall remain nameless. Uh, but if you want a real book, there's other ones in there too. <laughs> No, it's good. It's good stuff. It's a good. It's, point, aimed, at, it's aimed at children. That's the one that you wrote for kids, isn't it? So that they can yeah, twelve, twelve and upwards. People yeah. have said it's the it's the best kids kids book for adults on astronomy. <laughs> I think that's the problem. Yes, yes. Um, well, I'm I'm gathering everyone who wrote it has uh, also voted for Ruva uh, or read it. Read it. Sorry, um, but anyway. Uh, but yes, uh, do log on to our website to send us questions, visit the shop, or become a patron if you would like to do that and help us keep the lights on. Yes, mine's still on. Got, just got my electricity bill, so I, wouldn't, I wasn't sure. Mm. Uh, that just about wraps it up. Thank you very much, Fred. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to have a, a nice juicy episode to get our teeth into. We've got Indeed. some great ground to up today. We, we sure did. Mm. All right. Thanks, Fred. We'll catch you next time. Sounds good. See you, Fred. Thank you very much. And to Hugh in the studio who um, didn't appear today, well, shame on you. The reason he didn't show up is because he voted for Ruva. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks uh, for your company. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.